Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realise. I think this is the biggest revolution in psychiatry ever. You know, I think it would transform many aspects of psychiatry, depression, anxiety, addiction, anorexia, etc. Today's episode is a very special one for me. I am in constant awe of the person that I am interviewing today. He really does stand up for what he believes in when it comes to science. So much so that he was fired in 2009 by the Home Secretary for his inconvenient views on drug policy. Professor David Nutt is a neuropharmacologist and director of the Centre for Psychedelic Research in the Division of Psychiatry, Department of Brain Science at Imperial College London. He has published over 500 original research papers. He has written eight government reports and 35 books. And his latest book on cannabis came out last month. I felt so honoured to be able to speak to Professor David Nutt today. He's one of those people that has been sat on my vision board with a list of questions which I have been so eager to speak to him about. Psychedelics are really having a moment today and so it was fascinating to explore this further with him on where David Nutt really believes psychedelic treatment could lead to. We explore many other drugs as well such as cannabis and alcohol. I would say keep a very open mind when listening to this episode. We cover a range of quite controversial topics but ones which after listening to this and engaging in conversation with Professor David Nutt are more important to talk about, I think, than ever before. We are in a mental health crisis and opening our eyes to new fields of research and treatment, I think, can be very beneficial. Professor David Nutt, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you. I am so excited to have you on today. I can't tell you that reading your latest book, Cannabis, but also two of your others, and looking at your research, writing this interview was extremely difficult. Figure out where we actually start, because you've spanned so many different areas of drugs, from psychedelics, to alcohol, to cannabis to being fired from to the mm. Home Secretary in 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually have a book written about that as well. Mm-hmm. So before we kind of go on this journey of mm-hmm. one, your life and also your research and, mm-hmm. and where we currently are to date, a lot of people might not have heard of psychopharmacology. Mm-hmm. Could you first of all just start off by saying, mm-hmm. what is psychopharmacology? Psychopharmacology is a term which refers to the study of how the drugs affect the mind. And that's predominantly the area that you work in. Yeah, so I'm a doctor. I'm mm-hmm. a psychiatrist. I prescribe drugs to help patients. But I also realised when I was an undergraduate, I was very fortunate because I was an undergraduate in Cambridge and my tutor was one of the people that discovered GABA, a chemical that has a huge impact on brain function. And that was the beginnings of the world understanding that the brain was a chemical organ. Up to that point, people thought the brain was an electrical organ because if you record from the brain with the EEG, it's electrical impulses. And, of course, neurons connect with each other by sending electrical impulses down their things called axons, their arms. But at the end, they release chemicals to make the next neuron fire. 
And the chemical brain is a really fascinating uh, phenomenon because there are at least 80 different brain chemicals which communicate across neurons. And to study those, you need other chemicals, which we call drugs pharmacology. So that's where psychopharmacology comes from. And you mentioned that we're going to go into this deeper, which is the GABA system. And I like to explain it for anyone that's not heard of that as more of an anti-anxiety system, which is regulated through breath, but also through drugs. Is that correct in saying? Yeah, GABA is a fascinating neurotransmitter. It's been around since the beginnings of time. You see, you get GABA in bacteria. It helps protozoa move. It helps plants protect themselves from uh, attack. And in the human brain, it has a major role in keeping it calm. Mm. It's the natural calming transmitter. I think we all need a bit more of that in our day-to-day lifestyles, don't you? Absolutely. (laughs) And in fact, one of the interesting questions is to what extent modern lifestyle is increasing stress by depleting GABA. Let's tell the truth about drugs. That's where I really want to start. In 2009, you were fired by Alan Johnson, who was the Home Secretary, because he said that you had inconvenient views. You question the skewed moral standards by which we judge drugs and alcohol use. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favourite lines. You memorably said that horse riding was more dangerous than taking ecstasy. Correct. Can you talk me through this process? <laughs> so I'd been working as kind of the government's chief scientist on drugs for about 10 years. And we had done an enormous amount of research into the harms of different drugs. Mm. And that research showed us really quite clearly that the current control, which the control then is the same now, the Misuse of Drugs Act, wasn't evidence-based. In fact, the most harmful drug in British society is alcohol, which is legal, and it still can be advertised. Whereas drugs like ecstasy and magic mushrooms and that were were vilified, but actually weren't that harmful. And we came to uh, a review of uh, ecstasy, which the government had resisted for 30 years, but eventually a select committee, the Science Select Committee, said, you've got to do it. So we did it. And in trying to explain to the world what the harms of ecstasy were, I thought, what what kind of analogy could we use? I mean, what are are other things that people do that might be equally or more harmful than ecstasy? And I happened on horse riding for a very strange reason, is that in my clinic, I used to treat people who had brain damage and behavioural changes from brain damage. And I saw a woman who had fallen off a horse a few years before and she damaged the front of her brain and it had completely changed her personality. And she'd lost her children and her partner and she lost her job. She was very, very disinhibited. She had what we call adult ADHD as a result of trauma. And I treated her with amphetamines like you might treat other people with ADHD. But it didn't help very much because she'd lost a large chunk of her brain. But then I began to wonder how common it was that horse riding did cause these sort of problems and I was that was particularly relevant to me because my two daughters were horse riding at the time and after a few weeks of researching this I became horrified how dangerous horse riding is particularly if you jump Mm. so I wrote a paper comparing the comparative harms of horse riding and ecstasy and on most measures horse riding is more dangerous than ecstasy and I thought that would help people understand that we shouldn't be so worried about ecstasy but in fact it just created hysteria and I got I got letters of insult horse and hound wrote to me and said did I not know that horse riding cured diabetes, which I genuinely didn't? <laughs> I'm not sure if it does. <laughs> but it really, it, it, it created an enormous uh, anger in the people who didn't want a rational debate about drugs. Mm. And so when you published these results, mm-hmm. which showed that alcohol was actually far more detrimental to our health than 
ecstasy and psychedelics such as, as mushrooms. Were you angry that this then wasn't portrayed in the correct classification of the drugs? I was. I was, I was angry because there are people in prison. We discovered in our research the drug that got you the longest prison sentence was ecstasy when it was one of the least harmful drugs. Mm. And that told us that basically decision-making about drugs was either based on some kind of perverse morality, that you don't like young people having fun, or based on some other kind of economic or political motive, like the drinks industry is telling the government what to do. Mm. And so that moment when you were fired, obviously I can imagine that being really tough, but you did, you really fought back. How did you handle that particular moment in time? So, yes, I remember it quite vividly. I, it was at, I think it was about 3.40 uh, and in the afternoon. I got a, a text from my secretary at the uh, Home Office saying, can you read your emails? And I said, yeah, read this one. Uh, Alan Johnson wants you to resign. I said, well, I'm not going to resign. I wrote back, look, you know, we, we disagree about the harms of drugs, but, I mean, I'm a scientist, you know, and I, I'm not going to resign for telling the truth about drugs. I got an email coming back and it said, you're sacked. And uh, so that was about quarter to four. And I, what I did, I just basically wrote a note to all my media contacts on, uh, on, in my email list. And then I went and gave my lecture. It was a bit shaky. It's probably the worst lecture I've ever given. And then at five o'clock, I left the building, went downstairs, and there was BBC News, ITV News, and Sky News. There's three outside broadcasting collections waiting for me. Did an hour of broadcasting. And the government were completely flawed. Then I went on to Newsnight. And they couldn't even organise a response, actually, till the Sunday morning. So I kind of commandeered the the, uh, the media waves all the Friday evening, all of the Saturday. And eventually on Sunday morning, Alan Johnson came on, and it's one of the greatest, funniest interviews you've ever seen. If You, you can go on YouTube and look Alan Johnson on Sky and David the Nut Affair. He goes apoplectic because people are just saying, well, you sacked him because you didn't like him telling the truth. You sacked him because, cause, you know, he, you, he disagreed with, you know, this stupid policy of yours. And Johnson's getting really, really angry. Because, you know, he wanted to be seen as the person in control when, in fact, he was clearly making a fool of himself. And why do you think that they didn't listen to you? And the actual research, the figures on the paper? Because drug policy is one of the few areas where uh, political parties think, I'm not sure it's true, but they think they can get leverage against the other. And if you look back, this is a 2010 election coming up, and if you look at the Blair-Brown government building up mm. to 2010, they wanted to show that they were as tough on drugs as the Tories. And they didn't like the fact that people were challenging drug policy. Because the right-wing press would say, oh, you know, they're just left-wing left liberals if they gave in to reason. Mm. They were wrong. I'm sure most people would have actually accepted a rational drug policy was the right policy. But they were terrified by what the Mail and the Sun would say. And isn't it interesting that then it, it just links to this stereotypical narrative of going back to how we resonate with drugs like cannabis um, such as, you know, hippies or looking at LSD when mm. it had the huge rise in the mm. 60s and the mm. 70s and, and how we're still having that mindset where these are now still pigeonholed. The real attack on drugs started in 1967 with the Nixon war on drugs, which was a deliberate political campaign. Nixon was standing for election. He was pro the Vietnam War, but most Americans weren't pro the Vietnam War. Mm. So he wasn't going to win. So he had to change the narrative. And he switched the narrative from Vietnam to drugs. And then he scared everyone into there being a, a massive rise of drug problems in America, which there wasn't. And he basically said, we, unless we fight this war, America's going to disintegrate. And so he created a false 
fear. The American public bought into it. He got elected. He won every state except Maine. And the war on drugs has reverberated ever since that point. And do you think now that, and I, we're going to go more into your research, especially around psychedelics, but now more of this is coming to the forefront. Now we're having more scientists speak more openly. Mm. Do you think that the government, the British government in particular, will listen more to this research and want to welcome it more as opposed to hinder it as they did when... when well, we've not now. seen any signs of, of improved reason. In fact, mm. we've gone even back. We, in Britain, we have a more repressive law than the Americans. For the first time in history, we've done something worse than them, which was in 2016 when Theresa May brought in the Psychoactive Substances Act, which bans any substance that works on your brain except alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. I mean, completely absurd law, which was designed to deal with a problem that didn't exist. But it was politically very expedient. because So they created the hysteria about new psychiatric substances. Even though the Home Office said, well, there's less than 10 deaths a year. But they created hysteria in order to basically, I think, get the electorate thinking about something other than the economics. Uh, and now we have this law which bans pretty much everything. And all it's done is driven uh, the use of psychoactive substances underground. It's closed head shops. And we've gone from having relatively mild stimulants being sold in head shops, like methiopropamine bubbles or sparkle, to on the back streets, really potent ones, you know, like monkey dust and that, which are much more dangerous than the old ones. So as with most laws, it's created more problems than it's solved. And, it, and this particular one didn't solve any problems at all. Mm. So we're actually going backward, we're not going forward. We have gone backwards substantially in the last decade under, under Conservative rule, not just in drug policy in relation to prohibition, but also in the fact we've also eliminated or massively reduced a lot of the experts who were, were, were trained in treating drug problems. Most psychiatrists who are trained as addiction psychiatrists have been made redundant in the last 10 years. And does that worry you? It terrifies me. It absolutely terrifies me because year on year we have the largest number. Each year we break our own record in deaths from opiates and cocaine. And that tells me that we're not doing things right. No, especially when you look at the opioid crisis, especially in America. Yeah, the American opioid crisis, of course, is, is, is truly horrific. I mean, more Americans died last year of fentanyl than died in the whole of the Vietnam War. Mm. But fentanyl's coming here. We've had 70-odd deaths from fentanyl last year. And uh, fentanyl's getting put into other uh, non-opiate drugs. You sometimes see me even in cannabis now. So it, there's a real threat that the fentanyls will actually become the big problem in, in, over the next decade in this country. And they're really lethal substances. And so one thing that I do just want to highlight before we move on to psychedelics and, mm. and psychedelic use is even though you had all of this in 2009 with being fired, I do want to state that in 2013 you were awarded the Nurture and Sense About Science of John Maddox Prize for standing up for science. How did it feel for finally being recognised for your research? And um, Oh, it was tremendous. I'm yeah. really chuffed about it. In fact, it's there. <laughs> there's, can there's, you can see it on the floor there if you want. There's the prize. There's the prize certificate. Amazing. Apparently sat in David's house. If you look onto the vlog, you'll be able to see that. And I'm really proud of that because do you know who got it last year? Who? Fauci. Really? Mm -hmm. So, yes. And can you I'm tell in good everyone who Fauci is, for any listeners who might not be aware? 
Uh, so Fauci was the uh, was the infectious diseases expert who led the U.S. Uh, approach to COVID in the face of enormous opposition, hostility from uh, some president. I can't remember his name now. What was he? What was he called? Uh, Trump. <laughs> I think we were just completely taking yes. him out of our minds. <laughs> So let's go on to psychedelics because this is one of the areas where you're really pioneering research. And I know that you are currently working in anorexia nervosa and OCD and mm. now even streamlining into addiction. So there's so much for us to unwrap. Mm. And first of all, where do I even start? I think I start with what are psychedelics? Okay, so psychedelics, the term means mind manifesting. Mm -hmm. It was a term that was developed in the 1950s by people like Huxley. Psychedelics are a group of drugs like LSD, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, which is it, it's prepared in Latin America as a, a drink called ayahuasca, uh, magic mushrooms, which contain an active ingredient called psilocybin, and also a substance called 5-methoxy-DMT, which comes from toads. It's an exudate of toad skin. Those four are what we call serotonergic psychedelics. They all work on the brain's serotonin system. Now, probably all your uh, viewers have heard of serotonin, but what they might not know is that Serotonin has so many roles in the brain that there are 14 separate receptors for serotonin in the brain. And some of them cheer you up and some of them make you anxious. And one of them, if you stimulate it, which is what the psychedelics do, gives you the psychedelic experience. And that's when we hallucinate. That's when you hallucinate. So this is the serotonin 5-HT, 5-hydroxytryptamine 2A receptor, and that's a very special receptor. It's targeted by psychedelics. We don't know why it's in the brain, no one's worked out exactly why it's there, but there's a lot of it in our brain. There's a, a lot of it in the very most recently evolved parts of the human brain, the parts of the brain which make us humans so particularly good at thinking and planning and imagining. Uh, and psychedelics stimulate those receptors, and by doing that, they change the way our brain works. Wow, okay. And so when we are looking into the treatment of psychedelics, because I think a lot of people will be listening to this and have probably heard of all the ones that you've mentioned, there's a huge uprising, people going off to do ayahuasca now, yeah, yeah. having the tea, DMT, but even, you know, looking at magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between microdosing these in clinical yeah. research and R using them in recreational right. settings? To produce an hallucination or to get into a, a, a real psychedelic state, you have to use what we call a macro dose, a dose that's big enough to perturb the brain and produce this, this altered consciousness. So with magic mushroom, the extract of magic mushroom, it's called psilocybin. We use 25 milligrams with LSD. You might use 100 micrograms. They vary in their strength. If you use a non-psychedelic dose, which we often call a midi dose, and that's what we're doing with our OCD study, you people have an effect, but they don't hallucinate. And then a microdose is a dose which is so low that you can't really tell you've taken it but it may well tickle up these receptors in the brain. And many people use microdosing on a regular basis because they think it improves well-being or gives them increased creativity or, or sort of cognitive flexibility. So what would you say to anyone who's listening to this um, and wanting to try psychedelics? Would you say, what would you say in that safety approach? Because I think more we go into this, the more people are going want to be yes. more intrigued. Yes. And I think before we kind of go into the effects with depression, addiction, anxiety, yeah. anorexia nervosa, what would you say to anyone who's listening to this who is interested and maybe yeah. wants to try psychedelics? So the safest way of trying psychedelics is to go and do it where it's legal. Mm. That way you can get arrested. 
Mm. If, so you can, for instance, as you've just mentioned, you can go to Latin America and get engaged in the ayahuasca ceremony. But you can also go to the Netherlands. Psilocybin mushrooms are legal in the Netherlands. So there are many retreats in the Netherlands which allow people to experience psilocybin. In fact, many of our therapists go to the Netherlands to get that experience because they don't want to run the risk of actually breaking the law here and getting caught here. Mm. So that's the, that's the safest way of doing it. Mm. If you decide you want to do it locally with friends, then always make sure there's one person that isn't tripping when you do it. And obviously start with a low dose because so, it's difficult with mushrooms to know exactly what's in each one. So mm. work with someone who's experienced, perhaps who grows them, who can actually make sure that you, know, you don't accidentally take too much to start with. But mm. always have someone with you who isn't affected so if things go wrong they can support you mm. yeah i think that's really important and we're going to go on more to your um fantastic not-for-profit that you set up post um leaving 2009 and maybe there's some more research there where people can come and get involved but looking more into how psychedelics work and understanding with these 14 different receptors in the brain of serotonin mm -hmm. receptors can you talk to me first of all about how it's used in depression and anxiety? Because I find the research where you've heavily cited that it works in a particular network that encodes a sense of self. With people that are depressed, there is the default mode network, which is actually over-engaged in depressed people. How do psychedelics fit in in this context? So our major contribution to this field has been understanding how psychedelics work in the brain. Mm. And I've told you they work on these receptors, and these receptors in the high-level parts of the brain. And those, that particular part of the brain is part of what we call the default mode network that you've mentioned. Now, it's called the default mode network because it's the part of the brain which is active when everything else is switched off. Mm. So when you're sitting quietly, not listening to music, with your eyes closed, just reflecting on yourself, your past, your present, your future, if I was to scan your brain, that network would be active. That would be the dominant network. And it's where you do your thinking about yourself. It's where your, your ego is lodged. It's where all your memories of self, all your hopes and fears are lodged. That's, that is really this, where the real substance of you is located in the brain. Now, in a disorder like depression, the default mode network becomes overactive. And that's because in depression, people are thinking more and more and more about themselves. They're, depressed people typically do what we call ruminate. Mm. The, the thoughts go round and around. Mm. I've made a mistake. I'm a bad person. I've made a mistake. I'm a bad person. I shouldn't have done that. I'm worthless. That thinking takes over the brain. It, it becomes a kind of habitual thinking. And psychedelics completely disrupt the default mode network when you take them. And so they break apart this thinking. And for the duration of the trip, people are no longer depressed because they can't be because they can't perpetuate the thinking. And that allows them to see that they can be undepressed. So some people have been depressed for 20, 30 years. But the other really clever thing is when you break down those thinking processes, you open the mind to other thoughts. So people can then begin to reevaluate and say, well, no, I'm not a bad person. It was not my fault I was abused by my parents. It's their fault. They can completely turn it on its head and they can come out of the trip with a new insight. And then they can think differently about themselves you know, from then on. So you escape from the depression and then you can reset new ways of thinking which can allow you to never really get back to being depressed again, in least in some people. Well, so setting these new neural pathways, how long do these effects last for? Can yeah. it be a week or could it be six months? What's the kind of outcome? Well, so in our clinical trials, we've had some people who are well eight years later. It's if you've reset the brain. 
that's not the norm. Mm. The norm is that people do well for, for weeks or months, but gradually the depression comes back. Mm. And I think that's very often because many people have been depressed for a very long time, sometimes from childhood. They've been abused or neglected in childhood. So they've, their brain has grown as a depressed brain as opposed to an optimistic brain or a positive brain. And I think with those, the depression is, is the sort of normal base state of the brain, and we suppress it with the psychedelic, and then it comes back. And we may have to keep on giving doses to, to kind of keep it at bay. You know, that's one of the research questions at present, how best to keep people well when they've got well. Mm. But for the majority of people, there is a significant improvement in mood, even if they've had chronic depression. I guess that's where the microdosing comes in, isn't it? If people can carry on microdosing after their... Yeah. main treatments this could actually prove much well i think longevity. that's that's a really interesting that's a that's one of the key questions if you've had a major improvement in mood with a, a macro dose a trip would microdosing keep you well i think that's a really good question and, and i i really want someone to study that but it's mm. very difficult to study because a microdose is as illegal as a macro dose so to do a microdose study you'd have to bring someone into the clinic every day to give them the microdose. And you, we were told, we've had, f oh, five years ago, we had permission to do a microdosing study with LSD. And the ethics committee said they had to come into hospital every day for eight hours to make sure the microdose didn't affect them. We said, well, it won't affect them because it's a microdose. Nope. And it, we haven't done the study because it's too expensive and too demanding of, of volunteers to come into the hospital two or three days a week for eight hours to do nothing. I also think looking at the limitations of that study as well, you're not in a normal setting, so how can well, you actually correlate that as their behaviour if they're eight well, hours into a clinic setting? I know, and it's, it's, um, it's absurd, isn't it? But it's mm. what the, the law about these drugs is completely illogical. Mm. And it is... Actually, these drugs, it's funny, these drugs are treated more severely than explosives. So we have explosive legislation that says, you know... Basically, you can't have a lot of explosives in, a, say, a chemistry lab in case someone blows themselves up. But you are allowed to have some because many of the chemicals that are explosives are you use for chemical reactions. But we're not allowed to have a molecule of a psychedelic. So they're deemed even more dangerous than explosives. I mean, it's completely bonkers. Isn't it interesting, though, one of four people in the UK suffer with a mental health condition? Mm. And we're going to go on to alcohol, so I won't touch too much on it now, but obviously alcohol is a drug and it is a depressant and it can spiral mental health conditions yep. and yet what you're looking at in the research here is actually trying to help and so it's just signed to seeing this mental health decline we're not supporting it and something that you did look into was SSRIs antidepressant drugs Sorry. and mixing this with psychedelics yes. can you tell me what that study entailed and what the outcome of that was as we started working with psychedelics, it became clear that they worked in a different part of the brain to SSRIs. So we developed a theory, which we've recently tested, which is that there are two separate ways you can lift depression. Psychedelics disrupt depressive thinking and, and kind of free your mind from the ruminative thoughts and allow you to think more clearly. A lot of our patients describe it like defragging or reformatting the hard drive on our computer, getting rid of the viruses, cleaning it all out, making it work fluently again. We believe SSRIs work in a different part of the brain. They work deep in the brain, in the, what we call the limbic system, the amygdala, the emotional center. And for about 25, 20 years now, we've known that depressed people have increased activity in that part of the brain. So if you stress them, that emotional center gets overactive. 
and SSRIs dampen down that stress response. And the way I think about SSRIs now is, is they are to the brain what a plaster of Paris is to a broken leg. You take the bone, you set the bone in plaster of Paris so that the bone can heal. You keep it secure for a month and then it heals. SSRIs dampen down the stress reactivity of the limbic system, the amygdala, and they protect it from stress so it can heal. And that's why it takes four, six, eight weeks for these antidepressants to work, because the brain has to recover. So these are different processes in different parts of the brain, and they're mediated through different serotonin receptors. Mm. And just a few weeks ago, we published our first paper that where we actually compared the brain imaging following a successful treatment with psilocybin and a successful treatment with SSRIs. And we could show the brain mechanisms are different. So we're I'm really happy about that because that's a breakthrough now. We really do know there are two ways to live depression. Wow. And would you say that psychedelics are, are more effective treatment from your research than, than SSRIs? So from our research, it's looking very much that one or two doses of psychedelics will produce better outcomes mm. than at least six weeks of SSRIs. Yes. Because there is a whole debate on antidepressants, isn't yes. there? And people yeah. are very worried to go on to antidepressants, yeah. worried about the effects, worried mm. if they ever come off the tablets. Yeah. Mm. And so do you see like a treatment option of the future that it should be more geared towards psychedelics than SSRIs? I think people should have the choice. Mm. I mean, SSRIs are actually very effective drugs. They, When you're on them and well, they do have side effects. They don't just blunt stress. They also blunt positive emotion. People often say that their emotions are a bit blunted. But they do give resilience. They mm. do protect you from the stresses of life. Whereas we're not sure whether psychedelics do that because mm. as you see we've seen the depression coming back after psychedelics you know you do have the side effects and you do have the for some people not many the problems of coming off psychedelics offer a completely different approach so i just think people should have the choice I'd, mm. I'd, and uh, you couldn't you couldn't force people to have psychedelics so some people wouldn't like the experience and, and there's still a lot of fear that have been engendered by the war on drugs which which we, you know many people still believe they're very dangerous drugs they're not People should have a choice. We can't force them to take psychedelics. Mm. If, you know, but it would be nice if those who wanted them could have access to them. Life is better with exercise. I can definitely verify that comment. You feel better, your endorphins increase, and it helps to manage stress and anxiety. I really do believe that exercise is one of the key pillars of our health. Since working from home more, I have really got into my home workouts and spin was one of the things that I missed terribly. So today I'm really happy to share our sponsors are Apex Rides, the British smart bike built to give you that studio experience in your own home. It's called a smart bike because the bike itself connects to an app on your phone or tablet so you can see your live workout stats while doing one of Apex's live or on-demand classes. Being connected also means you can ride with others across the country in real time. And although Apex's live leaderboard feature, any workout is gamified as you set out to collect as many Apex points as possible during the workout. On the app, there are loads of different workout options whether it's their metric bike classes, which are more stats focused, or their move rides, which are described as a party on the bike. There are also Pilates classes, 
floor-based strength series and a mobility program focus all on stretching. These are all led by one of Apex's 12 instructors who have been handpicked due to their easygoing nature, expert credentials, and their unique ability to make exercise fun. Something that runs through every Apex workout. So if you're looking for an exceptional workout that isn't going to cost a fortune, check out Apex Rides. The bike is now only 599 pounds so head to www.apexrides.com to find out more. And so let's talk about addiction. Yes. Because I know this is an area that you're very excited by mm. at the moment and you're leading into a lot of research here. Mm. How can psychedelics help with addiction? Well, it's, it's not generally known, but this is an amazing story. The founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson, he'd been a serious alcoholic for 15 years, from 18 to 33. And they were gonna lock him up for life because he just couldn't stop drinking. And he went through a severe withdrawal reaction when they gave him an experimental treatment, which produced a psychedelic experience in him. And he describes the experience, you know, of being somewhere else on a mountain with a wind, not of air, but of spirit flowing through him. And then he felt the shackles the chains of his alcoholism burst. And he found somewhere he founded AA after this psychedelic experience. Now that was in 1933. And in 1953, he took LSD and he realized that LSD gave the same experience that he'd have in his withdrawal-related psychedelic experience. And he became convinced that LSD could help alcoholics break open the chains of their dependence on alcohol. And he was a really influential man, Alcoholics Anonymous. By that time, was, there were you know, tens of millions of members in the States. He had huge influence with the US government. So he persuaded the National Institutes of Health in America to fund six trials of LSD and alcoholism, usually one or two doses, embedded in a classical, traditional, how to help you stop drinking, the 12-step approach. And those resu the results of those trials were really very, very good. They, they got forgotten about because as soon as they were done, the war on drugs kicked in and psychedelics were banned. But a couple of years ago, two Norwegians went back and they got the source data. They reanalyzed it and they showed that, that LSD treatment was at least twice, probably three times more effective than any current treatment for alcoholism. And I've looked back now thinking, 55 years since LSD has been banned, no one has funded a single trial of LSD in terms of addiction. In that time, over 100 million people have died prematurely from alcohol use and alcohol addiction. So suppose LSD helped 10% of them. That would be 10 million lives you know, rescued. How many lives have been rescued by banning LSD? The ban was supposed to stop recreational use. Has it stopped that? Probably not. Has the ban actually stopped anyone dying? Probably not. But let's say it did. Let's say it stopped a thousand. Maybe, maybe even a million. Maybe a million people would be alive now because they didn't take. They were scared off of LSD by the ban. That still leaves the equation tenfold stronger, heavier, better for the treatment. So why these drugs were taken out of medicine is completely unknown. I think it was a deliberate ploy to stop people ever using them again. I think there was a plan to get rid of psychedelics 
even though they were remarkably powerful drugs. And I think that censorship of research on psychedelics, which has occurred now since 1967 in the States to the present day, is the worst censorship of research and of clinical uh, treatment in the history of the world. Because not only might LSD help people with alcoholism, there were also studies showing it helped people with opiate addiction as well. And you're currently conducting, aren't you, a study with psychedelics and addiction? Well, we're in the process of setting up a study. Mm. Where I really, my last big ambition now is to see whether we can use psychedelics to help people who are addicted to opiates get off opiates. And I mean, that is a terrifying drug. What I find just interesting is how that's become legalised in America and the influx of use over there compared to how you're talking to me about psychedelics. But this is such a heavily stigmatised, even if I was taught this about my parents, you know, their views are very different to mine because they grew up in a generation where 60s and the 70s, they just saw people being quite outrageous, you know, off their heads, they would probably call them. And it's trying to change this viewpoint. And in this moment in time, opioids have risen we've had a huge mm -hmm. rise of addictive behaviors right. reliance on the substances mm -hmm. you know when we're actually kind of like overlooking it one drug that actually is really detrimental really addictive is causing a lot of harm and the ones that you're talking about trying to come in yeah. to compensate are being banned and what why are we using or why particularly the americans why are they using so much opiate therapy because people don't have alternatives there a lot of the heavy use is in, in, in communities where they're unemployed, mm. where you know, there's a lot of depression, there's a lot of poverty. And the opiates are given for psychological pain, which they don't work for. Mm. Psychedelics might well work for, mm. for, the, for people with chronic depression and, and chronic anxiety. Mm. Uh, and so it's even worse than it should be because, as you say, we've banned drugs which could be helpful, and that's forced us to use drugs which are actually destructive. Mm. And so something here that I find really interesting before we're going to go on to actually pain management, which mm. can also be used by opioids and, and cannabis mm. can also be used mm. by that, another one that's heavily mm. stigmatised. When we're looking at these drugs, a really interesting question that I find with alcohol, with psychedelics, with cannabis, with opioids, you know, what's the ratio between the dose of the substance mm. and how much it takes to mm. cause a death? Like, how do you measure that and how do we know the safe mm. upper limits of these yeah, well, that's a great question. And it, the good thing is it's a question that has been really well studied. The typical measure we use is the ratio between the dose that gives us an effect, either a medical effect or a recreational effect, and the dose that kills us. And that ratio for alcohol is about three. So if you get really drunk, you'll have a blood alcohol above 150 milligrams per cent. Amy Winehouse died with three times that, 450 milligrams per cent. Wow. So that's a ratio of three. So alcohol, it's three. Heroin, it's about three. Fentanyl, it might be one or two, because they're even more toxic. And then you go to the other extreme. Well, cannabis, they say you, the only way to kill yourself with cannabis is to have a bale of it fall out of a lorry on top of you. And the same with mushrooms. I mean, deaths from mushrooms are, are you know, almost never. I think when we look at it from a, a non-research point of view, just from an observational point of view, when we look at alcohol, we know that it causes a lot of deaths. I mm. mean, we know that 30,000 deaths mm. are caused mm. from 2019 in the UK that was recorded from alcohol. Mm -hmm. But I always look at that as a long-term cause of death, like liver damage, mm. or as Amy Winehouse, you know, she was drinking for many years heavily. So you kind of look at alcohol as this long-term killer. and not saying that that's true. And I think a lot of people look at drugs as a... 
oh, somebody took too much of a drug yeah. and then they died yeah, there and then. Exactly. And it's trying to get people to maybe yeah. look at it in a well, different lens. Absolutely. And the fact is it was Amy died from drinking a litre of vodka after she had stopped drinking. She was clean. She was dry. She'd been abstinent for six weeks. She met the criteria that the government had set for recovery. And that's what killed her because if you carried on drinking, she'd be tolerant. Mm. And it's the fact she was abstinent. And we see that with heroin addicts as well. They become abstinent in prison. They leave prison. The first thing they do is go and shoot up and they die. You know, the most dangerous time of anyone's life is, is, is the week after they leave prison. So drugs kill you acutely. But you're right. Drugs also, most drug deaths are due to accumulation of harms. But alcohol is peculiarly targeting young people. The leading cause of death in men under the age of 50 in Britain today is alcohol. In fact, because women are more successful and drinking more, it'll be the leading cause of death in women under the age of 50 within a couple of years. And that is through a combination of factors. It's, it's partly liver disease, it's partly heart disease, it's partly the complications of being drunk and, and road traffic accidents and fights and things. So let's go into that. So in 2019, mm -hmm. 90,000 people died from tobacco, mm -hmm. 30,000 people died from alcohol, and for cannabis it was less than 10. Yes. You've just written a book, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Which I've also just finished. Good, good. <laughs> and it really opened my eyes up to the world of cannabis because I think if you're listening to this, I'm sure many people throughout their lives have, have tried a spliff mm -hmm. or tried some form of cannabis or even tried CBD, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is from the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. And I really want to explore this area because your research also leans cannabis heavily into the area of mental health as well yes. and how it can support mental health. Mm -hmm. So starting with it, I always grew up with people saying, I smoked too much when I was younger, and I swear that's led to my mental health problems. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of conversation around psychosis mm -hmm. and too much cannabis. Mm -hmm. So it might be really interesting for people to hear that we're going to talk that it could help your mental health. Exactly. So how can we, first of all, speak about where does this line, is there a line of truth that cannabis can cause psychosis or cause mental health problems to start? Is there a line of truth in that? There's a very small risk that some forms of cannabis can aggravate psychosis. I don't think we can say cannabis causes schizophrenia, but it certainly if, you, if people who smoke very strong cannabis, 10, 15% cannabis, which is actually what is on the streets now, 95% of all the cannabis that you buy on the streets is that strong skunk type cannabis. If you are schizophrenic or are psychotic, then that can make it worse. Mm. But then you have to ask the question, why is all the cannabis that's available today skunk? And that is because misguided policies 20 years ago by the government supposedly designed to reduce the harms of cannabis, driven by the fear that it would cause schizophrenia led to the market being so distorted that actually the only forms of cannabis we've got now are the ones that actually do cause schizophrenia so it's become a self-perpetuating policy and it's a very sad and, and, and but a classic example of how policies have caused collateral damage that were predicted but ignored by governments so what's the difference between skunk and other forms of cannabis, I yes. guess, because what's the ones that people are sourcing in the black market are not, not the ones that we're seeing that have the positive effects on mental health. That's right. So cannabis is probably the world's oldest medicine. We've got evidence of it being used 
in medicine in China 6,000 years ago. It was a medicine in Britain until 1971. In 1971, following pressure from America, we took cannabis out of medicine. A few years later, the Americans started putting it back into medicine because the individual states decided, some of them anyway, that it was a medicine. And now, over 200 million Americans have access to medical cannabis. And the evidence of its value was growing and growing and growing. Until 2018, following pressure by my charity, Drug Science, and other, uh, other organizations, Chief Medical Officer then, Sally Davis, said, yes, it is a medicine. And so she changed the schedule from Schedule 1 to Schedule 2 so doctors can prescribe. But she made it very difficult for doctors to prescribe because only specialists could prescribe. And, uh, and it turns out that, that in the last three years, only three prescriptions have been written on the NHS. A couple of years ago, we, my charity, Drug Science, began to realise that the, the benefits of medical cannabis were not being realised. And so we set up a, a, an initiative we call 2021. 2021 is a medical cannabis initiative which you can access on the Drug Science website. And what we've done is we've trained up about 100 doctors and, and they will assess people to determine whether they need or would benefit from medical cannabis. And then we've priced the medical cannabis at the same price as on the illicit market. So there's no incentive, no cost incentive to go illegally. And we've provided a whole range of different forms of cannabis from cannabidiol dominant to THC dominant and everything in between so people can get the right balance mixture for their particular problem. The last count, we had over 3,000 patients getting medical cannabis through the 2021 initiative. Over 1,000 of them have got chronic pain, and, and many hundreds of them have got chronic anxiety. And the, one of the clever things we're doing is we're rating. Every patient gets rated for the effect on their symptoms. So pain patients get a pain questionnaire, and anxiety patients get an anxiety questionnaire. But everyone gets questionnaires to look at some of the things that medical cannabis does rather well, like sleep, like mood, like quality of life. Uh, and so we've got this enormous database, and we're finding some really remarkable outcomes. You know, we're finding that people's quality of life is improving dramatically. The patients in our trial have a quality of life which is less than half of what the average person in this country has. But after cannabis, they almost increase their quality of life by 50%, so they're getting more into the normal range. How does it work on the brain? Because you just mentioned THC right. and other yeah. forms of mm. cannabis. I'd love to know how this just works. The brain makes chemicals which mimic cannabis. Mm. So the reality is that cannabis m mimics natural neurotransmitters in the brain. There are two f major elements in medical cannabis. One is a substance called THC, which is what gets you stoned. And the other is a substance called cannabidiol, or CBD. And that has an attenuating, it's a modifying effect on THC. Traditional forms of cannabis, traditional herbal and resin forms of cannabis available in the 60s, 70s, 80s, were a balanced mixture of the two. Maybe 4% of one of THC, maybe 6 8% of cannabidiol. What's happened as a result of uh, uh, the attempts to eliminate cannabis production is that the illegal stuff now is mostly THC, strong THC, over 12% skunk. If you cultivate a plant to maximize the production of THC, it cannot make CBD. So you end up with this distorted 
um, product, which is much more likely to cause dependence and much more likely to cause psychosis. So we've created a monster by trying to get rid of traditional cannabis. The really interesting thing is that cannabidiol not only protects against the worst excesses of THC, but it also, in its own right, has major bodily influences. I mean, CBD is potentially a revolutionary treatment for some forms of epilepsy. The children with severe epilepsies that are now on medical cannabis are getting most of the benefit from the cannabidiol in the medical cannabis, not from the THC. And so the, the treatment programs that you're running right now for Project 21, are these a mixture of CBD and THC? So if you go into 2021, the doctor will decide what's best for you. If you have epilepsy, you'll start on high-strength cannabidiol. If you've got anxiety, you'll probably start on high-strength cannabidiol. If you're in severe pain, you'll probably start on stronger THC. But we always want people to have some CBD and THC together because CBD protects against the worst effects of THC and also probably protects against you getting dependent on THC. And that's really interesting because a lot of people probably heard about CBD. There's yeah. a huge explosive market now with CBD in drinks, CBDs in tinctures, CBDs in pills. And when you're talking about prescription, are these much higher forms than you can buy off the shelf with CBD? So when you're buying CBD over the counter from health food shops, you're usually buying um, products which have either 10 or 20 milligrams uh, in, say, a capsule. Medical value of, uh, of cannabidiol tends to come in at about 50 milligrams. If you took two or three capsules, you would be getting into this medical dose. The well-being effects seem to come in at 20 to 40 milligrams. If you do begin to push it up, then you do run something of a risk of interacting with any other medicine you might be on. There are known interactions between CBD and some other medicines, so you need to be a little bit careful about that. That doesn't come across when you're buying any CBD products. So could you give us any examples of medications that it might interact with? Well, there are some antibiotics it can interact with, that's right. And there are some anticonvulsants as well. So, so it is a bit challenging when you're using it in high doses. But just to reassure people, most people can't afford to buy CBD in the doses which would interact. Yeah, that's true. But I think there are some people out there who are so health-focused, yeah. who do have all the lotions and potions and supplements going, and will be really unknown that taking antibiotics will actually interfere if they're taking CBD in some form. We started off focusing on brain problems because that's what we knew about, but then we gradually got expertise in other disorders. And so now we know that a lot of people with Crohn's disease or otitis colitis, they find real benefit from, from cannabis. There are other syndromes, connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, where it can be revolutionary. We've got one wonderful, wonderful partner of ours, a lady called Lucy Stafford, who was in intensive care for months in Cambridge, um, Adam Brooks Hospital, probably going to die. And now she's an undergraduate at Sussex University, two years later, just because of medical cannabis has transformed her life. So basically, if you've got a disorder that you think might be benefit from medical cannabis, you can log on, you can see the doctors. If they agree with you, then they can prescribe for you. Mm. So it's on the website. You just go on the 2021 website, log on, get an appointment, see a specialist. We'll make sure we put all the links to drug science um, and this project. And before we go on to the next section, which I want to talk about is alcohol. Also, I just want to quickly reverse back because I really wanted to touch upon this, especially for anyone listening who has a daughter, a friend, a colleague, somebody that is suffering with anorexia nervosa. I know you're also conducting trials here with psychedelics, aren't you, as yes. well? Yeah, one of the really fascinating things about psychedelics is that we... 
we believe because they disrupt these brain circuits which get people locked into the wrong kind of thoughts, they could be useful in disorders other than depression, other disorders where people think wrongly. And a classic one, of course, is, is anorexia, where people think that they're much too fat when they're not fat at all, mm. or they think that food is bad for them. So we started a trial of psilocybin and anorexia. Uh, it's a very clever design, which I can't tell you because we're not allowed to tell the, the sure? subject. I, no, no, no. Not an exclusive. Not at all. No, <laughs> only at the end. But what I can say is it is well tolerated. And uh, we've put seven um, patients through. And many of them say that was a really interesting and important experience. Now, our main outcome measure is, is how they are viewing eating and their body size six months later. So we haven't collected that data yet, obviously, because we're trying to get... 20 patients we've only got seven so it'll be another year before we get enough people through to be sure that the findings are, are really correct but it's uh, it's a really i think it's a very exciting uh, innovation but also a very important one because as, as you probably know um, anorexia is a, you know it's a very difficult disorder to help people with it really really is uh, it, well, that, it's a revolutionary study because 84 percent rise this year in eating disorders and with calories coming on the menus for these specific populations yeah. that are really suffering with eating there's a lot of people out there that are on six to nine month wait lists for the nhs mm. not getting the support and so i think anyone who is listening to this please 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 do go and check out drug science and david strauss so coming on to alcohol yes now this is something that i'm very interested in and we do actually have today sat in your house the bottle of your non-alcoholic spirit which works with the GABA system so right. we were talking about the GABA system in the very beginning yeah. and um, I'm going to pop it on for anyone who's watching on camera here it is the active botanical spirit so before we go into the GABA system and your wonderful creation I want to first of all start with you do drink I do you do own two bars I'm a Yes, co-owner. Co-owner of with co -owner. my daughter of a, a couple of wine bars in Ealing. Yeah. And you do famously enjoy a very single small malt before bed. You've read my CV very well. I have. <laughs> <laughs> so I think before we start discussing alcohol use, I think it's important that you know we're not mm. demonising it fully, and and you yeah. do enjoy a drink. Um, and I think that's very important to note because. Again, let's just go back to 2009. Shortly after this moment, presented data in The Lancet, which is a very highly regarded journal, um, showing that booze is more harmful to society than heroin or crack. Mm -hmm. And I think this comes back to when you were looking at the data that you collated Correct. and how high up alcohol was mm -hmm. compared to these other drug substances. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, your road into alcohol started as a PhD student. That's right. In 1983, when you actually discovered an alcohol antidote. Mm -hmm. Now, this has blown my mind, and I'd love to know more about how this drug actually reverses drunkness. Make sure I had to say that right, but a bit of a tongue twister. Yeah, so I was working on the GABA system mm. because I was interested in the role of GABA in brain function. I'd started working with a substance which would block GABA, and so I could show that things like Valium works with GABA, and I could reverse that. And then I thought, well, I wonder if alcohol works with GABA. So I, I was working with, with rodent. I had a rat, and I got a rat very drunk. 
<laughs> and then I gave it the I gave it this drug, this GABA blocker, and it sobered up, completely sobered up. It was perfectly normal. And I thought, what? Nobel Prize coming. I've cracked it. I've got the alcohol antidote. Ran off to see my professor, who my supervisor. I said, I've got an alcohol antidote. And he said, well, what's the point of that? And I said, well, um, you drive home safely. Uh, okay, but, yeah, but it'll still be killing your liver and your, and your heart and your brain, won't it? I mean, you know, you can't stop the poison. You can only st stop the intoxication. Subsequent to that, I've, you know, like most doctors, I've been confronted with the challenges of alcohol in everyday clinical practice. Mm. And as an addiction doctor, I've also worked very closely with people who have been alcohol dependent. And I went off to run the alcohol research ward at the National Institute of Alcohol Abuse in America for two years. So I'm, you know, I've been surrounded by the problems of alcohol. And I've worked hard to try to find new treatments for withdrawal, to find treatments to stop people craving, to stop people having seizures when they stop, to see if we could actually um, help people regrow their livers. You know, I looked at all the, tried to deal with all the problems of alcohol, but it's actually very difficult because alcohol is, a, is actually a very promiscuous drug. It doesn't just affect the GABA system. It also, if you take more of it, affects many other systems, and it damages your body. And in 2004, when I was in favour with the government, I led the Department of um, Science and Technology's foresight report. That year, 2004, we did a report on drugs and the brain and the future, 25-year view. And as part of that process, one day we were having a brainstorm, and uh, it suddenly came to me, well, if we can't find ways of turning off the harms of alcohol, why don't we just replace it? At that time, we were beginning to understand more about how alcohol works in the brain. So we thought, well, why don't we find drugs, medicines or whatever, that work in the same way as alcohol works to give the effects we want, sociability, conviviality, but don't work on the bits of the brain which do the problem, cause the problem, like falling over and getting angry and violent and killing yourself. And I spent the last 15 years developing molecules. And it's not been easy, but we are there. We, get, we now have some small molecules which we think we know, actually, from self-testing can mimic the effects of alcohol. But to get them from the test tube into the market, we have to go through food safety testing, and that's starting now. That'll take several years. My, my colleague David Oren said, well, why can't we find something in nature that will do this? He said, that's an interesting idea. So I put, we've got a student, and we put a student out to hunt around all the databases on natural substances to find things which would work on GABA in nature. And this is the final product. So this is a, a herbal mixture of Herbs which have been around, many of them around for thousands of years, known to have effects like relaxation. They're put together, there are five of these in here, enhance GABA. Three or four of them enhance those, and a few of them uh, also get them into the body faster. So it's a com complex uh, ladder system. And then, of course, there's flavouring as well. So we've produced this drink, which is a, a legal botanical drink that mimics the effects of alcohol. Where do I start? I have so many questions. Okay, so with the GABA system, now mixing this in with knowledge from drugs, when people take certain drugs, they can have a large rush to their serotonin receptors, which can create quite a large dip afterwards. Yes, yes. Similar with alcohol, actually, you know, that's mm -hmm. why people can feel quite anxious the Absolutely. next day and quite low. Yeah. So with this new... I can't call it drunk. Psycho can I call it? Is it psychoactive in any way? No, it's a drink. This, it's a drink. This new alcohol alternative. This new alcohol alternative. It, so I should just be clear about this. Foodstuffs are exempted from the Psychoactive Substances Act, so it's not a drug. This alcohol alternative. Can this flood 
the GABA system because it ignites the GABA system and create a similar effect. So it's designed not to do that. If you drank the whole bottle, it, you wouldn't get more drunk than if you just had a normal the drink, a drink size. 25 or 50 mils is the standard drink. It would, the effect would last longer, but it wouldn't get greater. So that's really important mm. because we want to have a ceiling, which is about sociability, conviviality, relaxation. Mm. We don't want people to get drunk. You won't mm. get drunk on this. No, that's part of the purpose. And so how would I feel when I drunk that? If it's working on the GAP system, would I feel energised or I feel giggly? Depends on your personality. I don't know. What are you like when you're, you're drinking? <laughs> Whatever you're what like. What am I like when I'm drunk? No, 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 no. A glass of... No, okay. This, this is designed to mimic a glass of wine or you know, a pint of beer. Okay. I think you just feel more relaxed. There you go. That's what it's planted. That's what it does. It makes you more relaxed, mm. better eye contact, mm. just more, more engagement, more reaction. You know, if someone laughs, you laugh. It's about m enhancing the social interchange. And that is what alcohol is an amazing drug. I supported my daughter in having wine bars. It was because alcohol is the par excellence, the drug that gets people together. Mm. That's why it exists in most societies. Some people think societies exist because of alcohol. Some people think the beginnings of permanent social gatherings were that so that people could be where alcohol was, mm. was, was made. And some people think that the cultivation of wheat wasn't for bread, but for making alcohol. There's, and it's not, no, it's, it's a credible theory. My daughter Susie, she wanted to set up a wine bar that was where women could go and socialize. Most bars, particularly if they're pubs, you know, it's full of men who are drunk, unpleasant often, and are watching football. Mm. And most women don't want to do those things. They want to go somewhere quiet and have conversations in pairs or you know, in, in, in larger groups in a safe environment mm. over a glass of wine. And, and that's why she set it up, and it proved extremely successful. And now she sells Sentia too, so you have a choice. You can either have alcohol there or Sentia. I think it is really important to have a choice. Also, I think it's important to have a non-alcoholic drink that's not water. This is really the basis of why we set this up, because... Everyone knows. We all experience it. You, you go into, you meet someone new. You go to a party. You're not sure, who, you know, who's there. Everyone has social anxiety. It's a natural state of the human being. This can help people overcome that in mm. a way which doesn't make them vulnerable to extreme intoxication or, or to dependence or withdrawal. Mm. And so this is actually regulated as a food. It's a food. Do you have any fears with the government? Bring them in again. Around them deregulating this and saying actually that because it affects your GABA system they see it as something that should be regulated. The uh, herbs in there, have all, they're, all, they're all legal, they've all been available mm. before 1997 so anything that's been in common use before then is, is effectively legal and so I, I mean it, it would be perverse wouldn't it for mm. someone to say well you know this helps you people relax I would be extremely disappointed if anyone wanted to do that. It wouldn't make any sense at all. Mm, I agree. Just a question that I feel that could happen after listening to your story today. We know that, that logic and the law don't go together particularly well. But mm. you know, as I say, this complies with all food regulations. Mm. It's a food additive. Surely people would want this. This, kind mm. of, this, is, this is a great British discovery. There's over three million deaths a year from alcohol. You know, if we, we could save half a million lives a year. I mean, mm. That would be an amazing achievement. Mm. This is a question, I guess, evolved mm. around addiction, where that many deaths are linked to alcohol. But do you feel that people with addictive personalities, on a whole, will just move from one addictive substance to another? Yeah, that's quite a complicated answer to that question. So the it depends on why they're using the drug. Most people who use alcohol don't get addicted. Mm. About 15% do. What are those... 
what's different about those who get addicted. And we know there are several vulnerability factors. Uh, some, some of it's personality, some of it's why people are drinking. So if you're drinking to deal with stress, and stress is with you all your life, it's quite likely you'll get addicted because, because you get tolerant to the effect of alcohol and you have to drink more and more. So there are individual variations or, or individual factors which make you more vulnerable. To some extent, there is a commonality of vulnerabilities, uh, like being stressed or depressed is a major one, being impulsive is another one, being very reactive to a drug. So people who get really high quite quickly on alcohol often become binge drinkers and, and drink more and more. For the majority of people who use a drug, addiction is not something that they seek. And if you can give them an alternative which gives them less of a hit, ignites them less in your terms, then you're minimizing the risk of the people who are vulnerable switching from just use to reduce or mm. to abuse or addiction. Mm. I just think it's a really interesting question because some people that I know who would reference them addicts themselves feel like they go through the system of addicted to maybe alcohol, then addicted to drugs, then yeah. addicted to exercise. Yeah. I'm not saying that, you know, that's yes, also going to yes. be beneficial, but then being yeah. that addicted to exercise can also be detrimental. Okay, and yes, it's yes. this interesting system that yeah, yeah. some people seem to have where they just yeah. say, I'm just an addicted person. And yes. it's how you break that. Well, this is where psychedelics could come in again. Mm. In fact, one of the things we haven't touched on, but is something we're thinking a lot about now, the brain processes of addiction are repetitive think thoughts. For alcohol, it's about drinking. For heroin, it's about injecting. For cocaine, it's about snorting. Their brains get locked into thinking about the drug. We can disrupt those thinking processes with psychedelics. That's what we're planning to do. But then there are other forms of addiction, like, like addiction to gambling, which is not a drug, like addiction to porn, like addiction to internet gaming, like addiction to exercise. Hmm? Addiction to phones. Yeah, not entirely sure about that, but yeah, but certainly the gaming side of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So those addictions—they're not drug addictions; they're mm. behavioural addictions. But we think they, the same brain processes underpin them, and that's why psychedelics are really exciting because traditional treatments for addiction, like for instance, say naltrexone for opiate addiction, they only, they target the, the pharmacology of the drug. Gambling's not got a pharmacology, so. Mm. But if we can target the brain processes and disrupt them, then maybe we can have a broader intervention across all addictions. Well, I feel like we've come back to full circle to the psychedelics, which is just so fascinating that hearing these different dimensions of drugs and how they play out and actually how one drug could be quite a fundamental beneficial player in, in all of this. Absolutely. How do you see it playing out? Like, what's mm. your forecasting? That's what I'd really love to know. Mm. Do you really see us becoming more open to these kind of conversations yeah. or do you still see it being very heavily on the black market and a specific type of person trying to explore this as you mentioned going to maybe someone like the amazon and trying ayahuasca like how do you see this all play out i think psychedelics psilocybin and probably dmt uh, possibly LSD. These will be medicines certainly in the next 10 years in, even in britain i think one of the advantages of the few advantages of Brexit is it has allowed us to adjust our regulatory system to be more sensible. We should be able to fast-track treatments through, provided we can get the Home Office to deschedule them. I think the clinical evidence is going to build up so powerfully. There'll be such a body of it, like a tsunami in the next few years. We will have to reschedule these drugs as medicines, and then I think they will be widely used. I think this is the biggest revolution in psychiatry ever. 
you know, I think it would transform many aspects of psychiatry, depression, anxiety, addiction, anorexia, etc. Mm. It's needed more than ever because mental health conditions are heavily on the rise. I'm sure you can see that from the work that, that you do as well. Absolutely. We're, we're now in a, in a world where there's much more uncertainty than there ever was. People are much more stressed. We've, mm. We don't know whether we're going to have another nuclear holocaust mm. or a nuclear war. We don't know whether we're going to be able to heat ourselves. We don't know whether there's going to be another virus. There's an enormous uncertainty in this world, and that's, that's causing great problem, mental health problems. Mm. And, and you know, psychedelics potentially offer not only a solution to that, to those problems, but also maybe offer more of a solution to thinking differently about the world. You know, mm. Can we actually change society so that we don't have such a big store of problems in future you know maybe we can people become more sensible about how they deal with climate change for instance yeah and very interesting point and as you mentioned to me when i walked in if we don't have a, a rainforest that's right then you know that actually impacts us all and so these wider conversations need to happen and i found it so fascinating there's so much more i could ask you but i'm sure that I could sit up for another seven hours. But the last question I'd love to ask you, which I ask all my guests, is, Professor David Nutt, what does live well, be well mean to you? The answer is being well is obviously so critical. I think one of the really interesting areas, and this is, again, sorry to get back to this to this centre, is that, is that as I have been working in this field, I have come to realise that there's more to being well than the brain. It's now becoming very clear that, that being well involves having a healthy gut, having a very he healthy, not just the gut nervous system, which I knew about and goes to the brain, but also have the gut contents have to be healthy as well. So I'm very excited by the prospect that we, we can begin to develop foodstuffs that not only make us feel good, but also can potentially you know, improve our health as well. I think that's such a wonderful answer because being a nutritionist and having Tim Spector on the uh, podcast this season who is heavily down the down the evidence route of the gut microbiome and understanding about how that impacts us overall. We know that serotonin, 90% is made within our gut. Dopamine is made within our gut. And so if we don't start there, and it always surprises me how we seem to compartmentalize different parts of our body and treat them separately as a treating to them to the whole system together in yeah. synergy. And I think that's something that is really interesting looking forward into research is maybe trying to collate all of you around a table and, and see what would happen. We are going back to the idea of psychosomatic medicine now, I think. We're understanding that it, it is actually the, the gut brain is similar to the, to the, the brain brain, the head mm. brain. They interact. This remarkable impact of the microbiome. It's early days, but it get your, the bugs in your gut right. It doesn't just make your gut work better, but it can make your mood better. Yeah. And actually, I, what I didn't know until I started working in this field of, of plant GABA products was actually there's a lot of GABA in the gut. Yeah, there's so much about the gut that I think we're still researching and finding out. But I do think, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the good mental health does start within the gut. Eat healthily, absolutely. And, and of course, that's quite a challenge with if this poverty is going to be on the rise. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a big challenge to, mm. to get quality food when you've, um, you know, it's... Uh, you're in a recession. Yeah. And so lastly, for anyone else who wants to look more into this, can you tell them about your podcast? Can you tell them about your Twitter handle, which I love to follow? Yes, um, and also the website for drug science as well. 
So yes, most of what I do in terms of communicating, particularly around uh, addiction and, and psychedelics, is done through my charity, Drug Science. So just go on the Drug Science website, and there you will uh, be able to click on my podcasts and, and listen to my podcasts. And I've interviewed some really interesting people, people like Michael Pollan, who's written about uh, psychedelics, but also written about other drugs and caffeine and tobacco, etc. cetera. Uh, and also follow me on Twitter, Prof David Nutt on Twitter. And, uh, and then you can share with me your thoughts and give me the thumbs up every now and then. I'd highly recommend that. Highly recommend it. David Nutt, thank you so much for showing so much insight today. Yeah. And I'm very happy that we, we left that on a nutrition topic. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realise. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast, I would really urge you to support us on Patreon. Our Patreon community really do help keep this podcast going. And alongside being within the community, you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific Q&As with me on topics that you want to hear. Being a Patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys. So thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well. Become a member and support this podcast. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.